0: Today, I'm happy to continue the interview with my friend, Dr. Terry Lynch. I started this interview last week in episode 155, but once we started the conversation, it was hard to stop, so we just kept going, and you are the lucky recipient of having two weeks of Dr. Terry Lynch. If you haven't listened to last week's podcast yet, I invite you to do so, and this week I'm just going to pick up right where we left off. Terry qualified as a medical doctor in 1982. For the first 10 years after he qualified, Terry was an enthusiastic believer in the medical approach, including the medical approach to mental health care. Having worked as a family physician for 10 years, he became increasingly disillusioned with the medical approach to mental health. He set about educating himself into a more holistic and complete understanding of emotional and mental health. Terry completed a master's degree in psychotherapy, wrote a best-selling book on mental health in 2001, and for more than 20 years, Terry has provided a psychotherapy-based service working primarily, though not exclusively, with people diagnosed with various so-called mental illnesses. Terry's position in relation to mental health and so-called mental illness diagnoses is that this is a fundamentally misguided approach. The medical model is fundamentally misguided and diluted, a model that incorporates trauma, the subsequent wounding of the self, an aspect of which is perceived compromisation of one's sense of power, autonomy, and potential options choices. This is a far more realistic understanding than the prevailing and seriously misguided medical model of so-called mental illness. Terry is also a coach and fellow choice theory person. I stopped the interview last week with a bunch of questions, which Terry will begin to answer in this episode. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I would love to talk to you more because there's so many other questions I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about the selfhood and where you think that mental health problems, the things that are so-called mental illnesses, what actually are they? How do we help people in those situations? Some people will say the only thing that helps me is my medication. And you want to take that away, then what? Where do we go from there?
1: I'm not suggesting we take that away. That would be cruel. However, I do feel that there is a far better way, more accurate way of understanding mental health issues, mental health problems. When somebody comes to me as a client and they're on medication, I do not say to them, oh, you have to stop that now. Not at all. We start working and we see how it develops. So I would never suggest pressure like that be put on people. My model for understanding mental health that's evolved over the past 20, 25 years goes something like this. The core issue is trauma, wounding. We human beings get wounded a great deal more than we might realize. Psychiatry has convinced people to think of trauma in terms of what's called post-traumatic stress disorder, which, according to their categories, can only happen if something very, very major happens to you, like being attacked physically, sexually, seeing somebody being killed, being in a war, etc. And that's a very clever strategy by psychiatry, because it raises the bar so high that not that many people qualify to be considered as traumatized. The truth of the matter, however, is very different. And that is that we humans experience a great deal of trauma in our childhood, in our teenage years, obviously some more than others. What's very important is how the person, the involving person, child, teenager, interprets experiences the trauma and interprets the trauma, and the conclusions they come to about themselves and about life based on how they have experienced trauma. And trauma can be something very simple. It can be the accumulation of thousands of little things. So trauma causes shock, causes pain and distress, overwhelm, emotional pain, grief, sorrow, loss, fear. When we've experienced such pain and distress, pain and distress becomes overwhelming. And we don't want to experience it. And also, we don't want to walk ourselves into other situations that will hurt us, like the other ones did. So we create a whole series of coping strategies or defense mechanisms. These are actually self-protective mechanisms. And by the time somebody gets to me or gets to you, Kim, I found that, generally speaking, the person is living largely through their defense mechanisms. Yes, they may be in distress, they may be upset, etc. But their defense mechanisms are actually how they're navigating their way through the world. The next thing then is, coming back to all the work you've done and Bill Glasser, choices. When we've had a lot of hurt and wounding, and we felt we've had to create these coping strategies, defense mechanisms, we end up feeling that there are actually very few choices available to us. Because we're so wounded, a lot of the choices that are available to us are either beyond us as we see it, or just they just seem impossible. I couldn't possibly do that. So bit by bit, we develop kind of tunnel vision in relation to our choices. And we might only see one choice or two choices or no choice. And this is a very relevant feature of the experiences and behaviors that come to be diagnosed as depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, OCD, etc., etc. The fundamental foundation of that sequence is a very wounded self, a very reduced sense of self, reduced sense of self-confidence, self-esteem, self-belief. The self-talk is very critical, what I call self-generated security which basically means, do I feel I can make myself feel safe in a whole range of situations? When we've had an awful lot of wounding, we feel unsafe, vulnerable, defenseless, unprotected. We then apply that to our lives and we become very cautious, hypervigilant. We live very carefully. One of the main priorities for us becomes to minimize our risk-taking because because we feel so vulnerable, the idea of taking risks to us becomes terrifying. So we prioritize not taking risks. But of course, that then has this whole series of unintended consequences, such as a person not being able to reach what we might describe as the milestones of life, being able to continue going down what I call the motorway of life. In other words, you're born, you go to preschool, you're in your family, whatever, you go to the next school, you move on to the next school. Meanwhile, your life is expanding, ideally anyway, into teenage years, dealing with sexuality, relating, relationships. And trying to reach a point where you feel you can move on into adult life. These are very scary things. And if I've already lost a considerable degree of my sense of self by the time I'm 11, then I'm going to find that journey, that pathway, potentially overwhelming. And I may decide I can't do that. I just can't do it. So I may choose to pull off it. So it is a choice to pull off the motorway. But it's a choice because I don't see any other choices available to me. So that is the framework I use, Kim. It seems to apply across the board. That's always my starting point, to look at what level of trauma has this person experienced and what level of reduced sense of self do they have as a consequence of this trauma and then begin to work with the various aspects. That's my approach.
0: I love that. So it's the rebuilding of the self. It's the regaining courage that they perhaps used to have that they've lost, that life has kind of beaten out of them. I love that. I like to talk about the symptomatology people experience as compensatory behavior and use call it protection. It's very important. Without those behaviors, I don't even know what might have happened to them, right? Those behaviors kept them safe in very challenging and scary, terrifying situations. I came into psychology with the DSM-3. I graduated in 82, My bachelor's degree in psychology, so I've only ever known the medical model from that perspective. But I love the idea of calling these diagnoses, if you will, reactions. I think the only change I would make to that is call them responses, because that indicates more of a chosen piece. I don't think you nor I are saying that these choices are conscious choices, that people say, I'm just going to steer off the road and be schizophrenic for a while. People don't know they're choosing that. But the choice Peace is so important so that they can understand if you've chosen this, you could choose differently if you want to. Yes. It becomes empowering. It's not a, we're going to blame you for choosing this. I'm going to applaud you for choosing it. I've often thought about the diagnosis of dissociative identity. Mm-hmm. Respond. Let me start practicing that new language. Because yes. the history of what those patients have gone through is just horrendous. These clients have gone through some horrendous sexual abuse, usually by people that they were supposed to trust. And I think dissociation is the thing that kept them safe. It's the only thing. And what a superpower that is, not a disorder. It's a superpower. I want to celebrate your ability to do that and maybe suggest That you hold on to that superpower. I don't need you to stop dissociating, but maybe we can learn some new techniques for you to relax and be safe in lesser traumatizing situations. Save the dissociation for the big guns when you really, really need it, but you may not need it in your day to day. I love talking with you because you have a way of articulating this whole challenge that people believe, oh, and so many clients are happy to get their diagnosis because now they understand. Now I know why I'm different. Now I know what's wrong with me and I can take this drug and it'll fix it. The work is harder than that. And it's yeah. easier than that because you don't have to re traumatize yourself with an addiction to a drug that really isn't doing what you need it to do. It's just numbing you.
1: That's right. There's so much I could say to all of that. It's very understandable how people would like to get the diagnosis because it gives the impression that the doctor knows what's wrong with them. And so that's a relief. But it's flattering to deceive because this initial diagnosis, and the person goes home, oh my God, I know what's wrong now. I had depression. It's a chemical imbalance, and the doctor's prescribing the medication for it. So, initially, that sounds great, wonderful, but then as time passes and time passes and time passes, but actually it's not having the effect that the doctor said it would have, and they're not able to get off it. That's what I mean by flatters to deceive or flatters to disappoint. So, coming back to what you said about dissociating, him, I could not agree more. And it's a really good example of something that I realized many years ago, and I do it all the time in my work. And that is validate the experience. People are so used to having their experiences invalidated because telling someone, well, that's a mental disorder, that's invalidating the experience. That's saying, well, that shouldn't be happening. You really shouldn't be doing that. That shouldn't be happening. So that's invalidating the experience. That is wrong. It's inaccurate. And somebody who does that does not understand mental health. Whereas what you said is so accurate this this disassociation is a very creative, as you said, solution. It's what the person sees as their best solution in that moment. It should be seen constructively because the person feels, well, I didn't know any other way to handle this but to remove myself. The situation was so horrendous that to be there, to be present in that situation was so overwhelming, I had to get me out of there. What a creative, totally appropriate reaction. So again, The work there is to work with the trauma and the wounding, building up the sense of self, as you said, rather than, oh, well, that's a disorder and this is what you need for it. I recall a client of mine who I actually know for a long, long time. In fact, I I lived near them when she was a child. And she was in her early 20s at this stage. And she was in a different country. She was in the other side of the world. And she was extremely close to her father. And she got a phone call. And she was actually in a phone booth. This was the days when phone booths existed. And she got the news that her father had had a heart attack, that she told her father. And she just described to me what she went through. She said, as soon as I heard that, I was on the other side of the road. I was on the other side of the road looking at the phone box and looking at me in the phone box. And I was there for quite a few moments before I came back into myself. And I said, wow, what an extraordinary and appropriate coping strategy to cope with this horrendous news. We humans have amazing ability to protect ourselves, mind ourselves. But if we had an off-level wounding, we will resort to a few trusted strategies, including disassociation. And I think gentleness and kindness and encouragement, coaching the person back step by step. And to come back to something you said earlier on about people can make different choices, that is completely true. But I think it also has to be part of the dynamic that... Making different choices for that person may be terrifying. Maybe it's like walking into the unknown, walking out of their little small comfort zone. So what I tend to say to people in that situation is, take your time, maybe take a small step, see how it feels. If it feels overwhelming, go back into your comfort zone. And then do the same thing 10 minutes later, the same thing two hours later, or the same thing the next day, and go back into your comfort zone. So that the person can have it both ways. They can step out of their comfort zone and then go back into their comfort zone. And then bit by bit, if they keep that up, they began to realize, actually, nothing terrible is happening to me when I'm stepping out of this comfort zone. Maybe I can stay here a little longer. Mm -hmm. And that's that gradual kind of coaxing, if you like, that I find most effective in terms of helping people change the patterns of their choices.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. And it also makes me think we're talking mental health, but when we broaden that to talk trauma, we're talking about people with substance abuse problems. We're talking about people with criminal backgrounds. If you go into populations that have those things in common and inquire about traumatic events, I almost think 100%, but not 100% will admit to it because there's something about being a man. You don't want to admit certain things that you were powerless and things happen to you. But I think that there is so much more trauma than we really talk about. And I know from my work in foster care, I worked with foster children for a long time. We weren't talking trauma then, right? This trauma, the medical model is kicking and screaming about trauma. They don't want to talk about trauma. Um, It's not in the DSM trauma-related things. So when I was working with foster kids and these very young children, Five-year-olds trying to kill themselves, kids with severe mental health problems. We in the field knew this has to be something that's happening in this child's life, but we were told to take them to the psychiatrist and get them on medication. And when one medication didn't work, instead of changing it to another medication, they would just add another medication And so these kids would end up with so many drugs and my hero children, the children that I really respected, were the ones that were on so many medications and were still doing the crazy behavior because they were saying, you can drug me, you can do all these things to me, but you're not going to change me. And I thought, man, I had best hope for those kids. I like that we're now talking trauma I love the question. And I know you'll know who said this first. The question, let's not talk about what's wrong with you. Let's talk about what's happened to you. Who said that? Who started that?
1: I think the person that's most attributed to is British psychologist, Eleanor London, a well-known psychologist who went through a huge amount of distress herself, which was related to abuse and went through the whole psychiatric system. And she's now a psychologist I'm not sure if she's still attached to Leeds University, but she was. And she's very well known in the whole recovery movement. But a very quietly spoken, very eloquent woman, that's her main statement. Psychiatrists should not be saying, what's wrong with you? They should be asking, what happened to you? A hundred percent. And I suppose it's what happened to you, but also, and how did you experience that? And what conclusions did you arrive at following that trauma? Because the same trauma may affect different people differently. And there are reasons for that. But that's one of them, how we interpret things. And it also has to do with how high or low our sense of self is at the time of that trauma. So, Kim, you're completely right when you say that psychiatry has been dragged kicking and streaming into the area of trauma. In fact, trauma was never mentioned in the DSM before 1982. And I think reluctantly it was included there to some degree. A well-known psychiatrist, you may well have heard of him, Bessel van der Kolk. you know, he would be a global authority on trauma, and he's a psychiatrist. He created a video in either 2013 or 2015, and the title of the video was, Psychiatry Must Stop Ignoring Trauma. Now, think about that. This is a psychiatrist. And he described in that video, psychiatry's ignoring of trauma as a very serious public health issue. Now, a question that arises is, Why would psychiatry avoid trauma? Psychiatrists are doctors who want the best for their public. This is how the public think about doctors. They're doctors, they're psychiatrists. They only have us and our welfare at heart. Not true, I'm afraid. The reason that psychiatry is so reluctant to look at trauma is that if the place of trauma was properly recognized, then psychiatry's place at the top of the pyramid of global mental health would come into some very serious question. And of course, their longstanding 50, 60 year lies about the brain and brain chemical balances would also come under the spotlight. So it would be very challenging for psychiatry. So it's out of self-interest that psychiatry has avoided, denied the place of trauma disgracefully with incredible consequences, unspeakable consequences for millions and millions of people for the past 60 to 70 years. It's not good enough and it must change.
0: Amen. I think that's a great place to wrap up our conversation, but I do have a couple of other things, just details to fill in. Just like to give you the opportunity, if there's anything you'd like to add that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you could do it now.
1: Sure. Well, if people would like to know more about my work and some of the courses I create, at the moment I'm creating courses for therapists. I'm just finishing one on body dysmorphic disorder and I've done one on trauma and the wound itself, for example. If you'd like to find out more about that, my website is www.drterrylynch.com and that's the full doctor, dot hcom
0: Thanks, Terry. I'll put that in the show notes for people. Sure. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you joining us today, Terry. It is so nice to have a conversation with a like-minded person who's also doing this work. I know you're always working on a project, so taking the time from your busy schedule to talk with our audience is much appreciated. So I particularly want to say thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you very much, Kim. Our association goes back quite a few years and I have great affection for our association. Going back to the World Conference in Cuba, we're all friends and I'm always just a call away. Thank you so much. I appreciate that.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Leonard Citron about his use of choice theory in his practice. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.